0: As a voter, everyone should expect that the politician that they're electing into office can stand up to opposition, can articulate their opinions well, and is confident and competent enough to do that. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next election cycle, people learn from the mistakes of some people this time around, because I think voters will react more negatively to the lack of debate than positively to the debate in the first place.
1: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, you witnessed a crime, is that right?
0: I did. I'm going to talk to detectives um, later this afternoon, actually, because I I was the only person to call in this like really aggressive fist fight between a Grubhub bike delivery guy and a guy driving a car. I think the biker hit the car, but then there was this crazy fist fight, and then he drove off with the biker on the front of his uh front of his hood of his car for like probably like 50 100 feet down my block I don't know like for way too far and so um I am I am there to be the person who decides which which story is true which I have my my feelings yeah
1: so you could be called in court at some point here maybe
0: I have no idea hopefully not oh my god but yeah
1: everybody okay though you think
0: the Grubhub guy's face was like really beaten in when I went down to like be like, hi I saw this um, yeah, it was not good and also like if you're the biker like the guy who was driving the car obviously shouldn't be even if he even if the biker hit him, he shouldn't be. Bashing his face in when he's on the ground, so I yeah, think I it's I it's it's a pretty uh, yeah. I have some pretty a pretty clean conscience uh, saying oh who God. I think is right and wrong in this ini- situation, but very New York.
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah, very I've never New been York. a I've never been like a witness in court before. I think it's me gonna be neither. Quite the my experience. cat
0: was a witness too, and she was just very unfazed. She's like, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I've seen this stuff.
1: Somehow, I think this won't make it into a trial. Uh, I no, think the I don't think so either. Although they arrested
0: clear. the guy last night, though.
1: So. Well. Speaking of courts, we're going to talk about the Supreme of the courts. Uh, They have record low approval ratings, and uh, there's a lot of calls to reform, including former presidents calling to reform it. We're going to talk about whether it's grown more partisan over time and whether it's a good or a bad thing. We also have candidates who are refusing to debate in record numbers. You could say, Ricky, that we have some lost debates out there. We're going to talk about about that trend and what it means for our democracy. But first, uh, there have been some notable protests out there by some of our young folks. Yeah, And Ricky, as a representative of Gen Z, I want you to explain what's happening out there. I
0: think they've been notable for all the wrong reasons. But um, recently, I think the biggest headline grabber was in the UK, um, Vincent van Gogh's sunflower painting was um, had soup thrown on it by two a 20 and a 21-year-old um, activist from Just Stop Oil who were like protesting environmental issues um, by throwing a can of tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting. <laughs> Security. What is worth more art or life? I'm not sure what the one to one is there. But <laughs> um, then at the same time in the UK as well, there have been people just dumping milk on the floor of supermarkets for TikTok stunts to protest um, animal welfare and environmental issues. And I think these are they've gotten headlines for literally all the wrong reasons, even though I'm like, especially the milk one, I'm partial to their like cause underlying right. underlying it but like i think these are probably two of the kind of brattiest like entitled kid this is my TikTok viral moment sort of stunts that i've seen in a while from protesters so well, um, ricky
1: i do yeah. want to say that Young people don't have a monopoly on being entitled brats. Like there was Uncle Ewan from Succession. Uh, His name is James Cromwell. uh, And he had an incident recently where he glued his hand to the counter of Starbucks. Is this in the
0: Uh, show or like in real life? No, no, in real life. Yeah, Um. he actually
1: it's funny. He plays like a curmudgeon in the show. Okay. So you you could see the character doing something like this, but he glued his hand to the counter of a Starbucks. uh, And this is a fairly old man. And it was in protest to the fact that the price of non uh, dairy milk was more than regular dairy milk and it was really funny because the That's Starbucks didn't press charges against him because they' basically yeah. were like yeah it didn't really he wound up like, did he like taking his own hand off uh, eventually with a knife okay. but um, not like cutting you know, yeah, cut the I glue uh, but he <laughs> but he uh, Starbucks issued like a very bland statement. They said, customers can customize any beverage on the menu with a non-dairy milk, including soy milk, coconut milk, almond milk, and oat milk for an additional cost. Pricing varies by market. That was their statement. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it like totally diffused the protest. Nobody cared. The wow. I think this protest was ridiculous. I already, I, I barely ever tweet, but I even tweeted as much. But I think these these young ladies who defiled this Van Gogh deserve a defense. So I'm gonna put on my Johnny Cochran hat here and try to defend them. So, mm-hmm. you know, our friend Emma Camp over at Reason uh, wrote a pretty, I think, uh, persuasive to some critique about this, and she said while other forms of peaceful protest are defensible, there's a compelling reason to draw the line at vandalism. And so I'll start there in my defense of these girls, which is. You know, the Boston Tea Party was vandalism, Ricky, you know, and we we celebrate that in our history Uh books. Um, They didn't harm the work. Um, Fortunately for them. We wouldn't be talking about them if it wasn't for this protest. So in that sense, at least it's captured our attention. Uh, And the biggest piece here is if you believe that climate change is real, as I do, and that's a threat to humanity, there's almost no irrational act. Like this was almost a primal scream of them saying, hey, pay attention to this issue.
0: (laughs) Okay, so who that is like a climate change skeptic saw like a girl with pink hair throwing soup at a Van Gogh and said... Now my mind has changed.
1: We're gonna have to wait to see where the data comes out on this. I don't know. Yeah, we have to test I'm pretty this, sure you know? it's
0: going to do exactly the opposite. Like I'm pretty sure it's going to alienate the very people that they're trying to. Yeah, we know that Twitter. In.
1: We know it's, that Twitter's is not real life. So all these people on Twitter, like myself, who are saying that this was unpersuasive, we don't represent the real world. We have no idea. You know, there could be some, you know, an old lady watching the evening news, watching this and being like, "What is that climate change stuff?" and going down like a mm-hmm. Wikipedia rabbit hole. You know?
0: Yeah, it sounded like a middle school play. Like her little speech that she did after. I'm not sure that this is going to be the protest that tilts things in, in their favor and I think that almost all the headlines I got I saw like in all my research like one defense of them pretty much in total which made the good point that this this group Just Stop Oil was protesting in more direct ways against climate change and didn't get a lot of headlines for that reason. Right. But I just don't think that this is an effective way to protest. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that there are times where, like, obviously they broke the law for trespassing and for vandalism. But I think there are times when breaking the law is warranted. And that, like, I mean, our entire civil rights movement is uh, based on that that concession from our society. But I think this is just not going to do it.
1: Yeah, and I'll take my cochrane hat off for a second and say, you know, I totally agree. And I think, obviously, there is a fine line. I know my my... Dad's history in India. Uh, my family was involved in the boycotts of British cloth, and there was a lot that Gandhi and that movement did to mm-hmm. explicitly push the boundaries and breaking laws um, to make a point. And we have to reserve the right to do that. Obviously, it the the thing you're doing should have a relation to the cause, right? So yeah, that yeah, the painting, soup is
0: confusing. Yeah, the, the, painting the painting has nothing to yeah. do with oil. Right. The soup is confusing. Um, also, I, the the museum that it's in was previously funded by um, like one of the major oil companies and no longer as of recently. Mm. So that like completely lost any possible connection right. as of late. And there's not even any suggestion that these girls had picked it for that reason. But that would have been like the best case scenario, but it's not even the case anymore. Yeah, I was like this morning, so, I was
1: trying to mount my best arguments in their defense. And there was this article there were very few out there trying to defend them, but there was one that was like, here are the three reasons why what they did was right. And the reason number one was like this convoluted argument about how art is capitalism and capitalism is Mm -hmm. like the, 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 climate change is because of capitalism. And I'm like, this, yeah, everything is capitalism. So that means you could vandalism, like anything, like the guy with the hot dog cart on the corner, <laughs> because it's, yeah. you know, so it's obviously tenuous. Uh, but so, okay, we, if we're creating rules here, rule number one is it should have, if you're gonna break any law, the law should have something to do with the cause. Yeah. Um, two is maybe, I know this is kind of a amorphous standard, but maybe it should be effective, right? Uh, like maybe like what you're doing should, you know, compel people to feel bad for you or should compel people to think about how unreasonable the law is, right? Like lunch counters, for instance, or Rosa Parks on a bus. Like those are protests that not widely popular at the time. You can look back and say uh, that they were pointing attention to insane laws. Yeah, like
0: freedom rides and sit-ins were breaking a law in protest of that law. Like this is not a protest of vandalism laws and trespassing laws. This is a protest of oil yeah. reserves. Like even it's Boston Tea Party, different.
1: right? Like it was yeah.
0: It taxation it, without representation, right? Exactly. So it was related. Right? So it's it's yeah. related. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's an interesting history in our country with grappling with this because obviously, like we we want to apply the standard of like are you changing minds and changing hearts, but every social justice movement throughout history is only had to rise up because it was originally unpopular. And I think right. that that's an interesting question to ask. I don't really think that we can say like, this is gonna be the watershed moment on climate change because this girl, these girls threw soup on Van Gogh. But I think like going back through our history and grappling with that and what concessions we might make in terms of civil disobedience is an important conversation, especially after 2020 when certain um, protests certainly devolved into riot territory and, yeah. tr- and vandalism and trespassing. But one interesting quote that I found in my research here was um, from a New York Times article about when is it right to break the law from 1964, so right in the heart of the civil rights movement by Charles Frankel who was kind of like a philosopher and professor at the time. And he said, "Civil disobedience is a grave enterprise. Basic principles have to be at issue. The evils being combated have to be serious evils that are likely to endure unless they are fought. There should be reasonable grounds to believe that legal methods of fighting them are likely to be insufficient by themselves." And I think that's a really powerful reflection at the point in time when freedom rides and sit-ins and all of these clear, clear, bre- clearly breaking the law sort of protests are taking place. But for a reason that I think almost everyone unanimously looking back would say was completely justified right. versus at the time that wasn't the case and so I think it's interesting to see as the Overton window shifts as, t- as time moves on we can look at some of these protests in retrospect and say oh wow like that was really worthwhile and the laws that were in place were worth breaking.
1: Yeah it reminds me of you know that family history back in India my grandfather was more on the continuum of peaceful protests while still breaking the law. Like he participated Mm. in the cloth boycotts and and a lot of these other mass protests. His brother took a different approach. It was was my great uncle, I guess you would say. He was more of like a domestic terrorist. He was like actually going out there and committing explicit acts of violence in the name Mm. of the cause and it almost divided the family from what I understand. And there was actually a shoot on site order from the British on my uncle. Mm-hmm. but and but both of them had to go into hiding because of that. And I think it just is a reminder that like so many movements have this tension. Like if there was a, there was a clear line between what my family was doing in India to what happened in South Africa, Gandhi was in South Africa before he went back to India to our civil rights history and what happened in the 60s since. And I think when people I showed up to some of the protests in 2020 and I think that tension was on display. You had a ton of people, I would say the majority of people at those protests who were like let's keep it civil. And then you had some people who pushed the boundaries and there was, I would say, an interesting, but I would say not very nuanced debate at the time about this, where there was like, what did MLK mean? And like, you know, violence is the tool of the oppressed or something like that. And there were like people throwing one quote from MLK here and then another quote there. I have my strong opinions about the sort of spirit of what he was advocating for, but it almost is besides the point. It's like, all right, that's the history. Like, let's create our own history today and say, what is acceptable? Mm -hmm. And I think at that time, in my neighborhood, I was appalled by seeing people, in some cases people I knew, who would be coming to this neighborhood who privileged people, who'd be vandalizing a bodega that like an immigrant yeah. owns, and they would be saying that this is calling attention to yada, 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 and they just need to suck it up. I'm like, this has nothing to do with the issue. That person, that person's bodega, that person is not oppressing you. That person's just trying to get buy, and they should actually be your ally, right? Yeah. And so I think this is beyond, like, I know this is a silly example of the, the soup, but I do think this is, like, the metaphor, the sort of standards we need to bring have actually huge implications for our politics and society.
0: Definitely. You know? And I think it's an important conversation to have, um, especially following 2020, because now we have unprecedented abilities to just like whip up a protest in two seconds and have it be in 20 different cities at the same time. And we need to understand that you can on one hand say if like I support this underlying cause, but also you need to be willing to condemn like the, the places where people go too far and the things that that went a step past what they should have. And I think that in 2020, especially, what be, turned out to be so polarizing for so many people was seeing like the news reports of like the CNN guy with the fiery but peaceful protest, right. like Chiron underneath him and literally a fire <laughs> like behind him. Like, I think that sort of optic of the unwillingness to parse out. The fact that you can agree with a movement without agreeing with certain tactics or you can agree with some people's tactics, but not others is a really important thing to to talk about, because otherwise you risk alienating so many people when they feel like you're kind of lying to them about the reality is that they're seeing with their own eyes.
1: Right. Well, we'll keep an eye on these young ladies. I think, you know, as their defense attorney, I would say that they've definitely probably increased followers. They probably, you know, go on their social media presence. And so I a couple don't think years they're, now, they're
0: not scooping anyone from like the MAGA crowd out. or If anything. they,
1: if they then use that platform as they mature to create a more persuasive message, then we could look back and say this was effective, but only time will tell. So, all right, the Supreme Court, Ricky, where do we want to start here? There's like so much emotion around the Supreme Court. I think they, their term just began a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago. Uh, I would say tensions are high.
0: Yeah, well, last week we spoke about um, Obama's interview on Pod Save America. And he was asked whether he'd be open to Supreme Court reform. And he said yes. And I think that's an interesting kind of angle to delve into this conversation with, because his reason for saying that he is open to it in a nonpartisan way, like he would like very careful and thoughtful reform, is because the public trust of the Supreme Court has eroded so dramatically. And I think that it's important to look at the data of just how typical Americans feel and only 47% uh, say they have a great or fair deal of trust, which is a 20 point drop from 2 years ago, which is staggering. Um their approval rating over the past two decades went from 60% to 40%, 47% of Americans, so almost half see it as a partisan body. 61% believe that politics are their principal motivation as as Supreme Court justices and only 32% think they lead with the law, which is staggering and I think that this is a clearly like such an important institution to maintain public trust in and if this if that erodes i think it it could be dangerous so i am actually like on the same page as obama here
1: yeah i think the public has made up their mind about this it seems right and and i wouldn't say the supreme court is the only institution that's seeing like widespread you know, public mistrust. I think at most institutions, governmental or not, are seeing an erosion of trust. Yeah, but,
0: but historically it's, it's kind of been like a, a figurehead of something that you can trust because right. it's tied to the constitution. And I think that losing that sort of like Anger feeling about the government while the Congress and the president can be right. like very, very partisan all the time is especially concerning.
1: Yeah, they have a unique issue at, with the lifetime appointments, right? Because like if we're losing trust in Congress, we got two years, you know, you do, you know, keep voting them out of office president, four years, right? You're governor every four years. Now, well, let's keep that two-year number in our the back of our heads as I go through this history because I'm going to come back to that number because I don't think that two-year distrust number is accidental. But let's answer the first question, which is, is the Supreme Court more partisan today than it's ever been before? And is it even partisan? And I think my take on this is that the Supreme Court has always been political, highly political in various points in our history, but how it's been political has been has changed over time and it's really important so like Mm -hmm. back in the day the supreme court justices and john jay our first supreme court justice you know was both a political and legal advisor to the president but he also served as the ambassador to great britain it was just a at the same time he was serving on the supreme court Mm -hmm. so this is a very different kind of world we were living in um you know john marshall was an avid, uh, you know, political observer and commentator on Federalist politics. If you read the Hamilton biography that was made into the musical, there's just like tons of John Marshall references where you're like, wait, this is the same guy who was on the Supreme Court. He was like a political activist yeah. at the time. And you go through history, all the way through Lincoln's time, his own campaign manager served on the Supreme Court. Like these people were very political. And this culminated in Abe Fortas, who was basically, He, I thought this was a metaphor until I looked into this. He literally had a direct line to the president where they would communicate regularly about yeah. both legal issues and not some of this stuff was above board in the sense that it was like they were treating the supreme court like the general counsel where they'd be like hey ricky like um i was thinking of passing this law uh can you just tell me whether it would be legal or not which we could debate whether that's appropriate or not but then some of it is just tons of ongoing inappropriate communication. Yeah, That was a different kind of bad. I think where we are today is is different.
0: I think there's two separate questions, which is, is the confirmation process political? And then is the way that they're voting political? And I would say that there's like I think we have this idea that there's this golden era that we can look back to that back in the day it was this perfect um, completely non-political body, but that's certainly not been the case. And when Jefferson won the presidential election in 1800, Congress passed the Judiciary Act specifically because they were concerned that he would put an ideological person into the court and um, essentially pack the court and they removed actually one seat it was six and they made it five because there was a vacancy and they didn't want him to fill it. And then as Adams was leaving office, he filled basically every single judicial seat that he could in like the first midnight appointments with kind of the partisan federalist concern at play. So I think that it's it's important to note that pretty much from the beginning, this was a relatively ill-defined institution in terms of what the Constitution actually says about how it should operate and what its role is and whether it's even the arbiter of what the Constitution means, which is something that came came to be after the court was established. And several years in, Jefferson thought that the president could just decree that, which right. is crazy and in retrospect to think about. So I think it's important when we talk about this to realize that a lot of the things that we take for granted about how the Supreme Court works, including how many seats there are, um is just completely a norm that's like layers and layers of precedent that like yes it's important to respect precedent but that doesn't mean that if it's fundamentally crippling an institution we can't talk about how to reform it
1: right and there was actually this really great debate uh that harvard law school recently put on where they had a couple people on one side saying hey the supreme court is political and a couple people on the other side saying it's not uh i do believe it's political but i thought the best argument against my position came from this guy i went to law school with who was probably the smartest guy i went to law school with i'm not particularly close with him this guy named will bode who uh, is a professor at the university of chicago the majority of the court has a strong view about about what the law is and how it works so one the fact that the court is committed to law over politics actually makes it seem more radical than previous courts not less because it means that the court is less inclined to just kind of tack toward the center in high profile cases or to use public opinion as a, as a anchor or a bellwether because there's, there's something else law. I think you can, you can accept what Will is saying here and say, all right, yeah, maybe these justices are not motivated by politics. I could debate him on that because I do think if you looked at the Kavanaugh hearing, for example, he explicitly said um, about abortion, for example, Roe, that it was precedent on precedent, highly, Um, suggestive that he would not vote to overturn it. And Susan Collins claims that he told her behind closed doors that he explicitly would not overturn Roe. But then he did very quickly. To me, that feels like a very political act and a partisan act to get um, appointed. That feels to me like you're playing politics. But putting that all aside, let's assume everybody is above board and not partisan who's on the court. Their intentions once they're on the court are irrelevant compared to the intentions of the people selecting them. And that gets to... The problem yeah. that we have today. Like, the problem is of selection, not of the motivations of the people. I think to it's get selection
0: and confirmation. Yeah. Because if you look at the history of how the confirmation votes have shaken out. It's only really relatively recently that we have like the clean party line numbers of yeses and nos. Like, if you look at Trump and Biden's appointees, the number of nos in the Senate were 47, 48, 48, and 45. And if you just go back to Obama and Bush, it's 37, 31, 42, 22. So, like, already just in the past couple of years, it's like much more a you vote with your team sort of attitude. And Reagan got Kennedy, Scalia, and O'Connor all in unanimously without a single no vote. So this, I think that's also an important layer as well, is that it's a relatively new attitude for Congress to just think that it's a kind of given that you vote based on whether the president of your party appointed someone. And I think that's also something to take into consideration as well.
1: Yeah, and that comes as litmus tests rise. So people who are watching YouTube could see this, but uh, I'll describe it for people listening on the podcast. This was a a table that Vox put together and essentially shows that starting in around the late 1960s, we start seeing a trickle of litmus tests from the political parties over things like abortion and gun rights, et cetera. And then they start to explode in the 2000s. And as you see the explosion of litmus tests, there's this other chart, which is from 538. You know, basically throughout the 60s, all the way to the early 2000s, you're seeing almost no completely polarized Supreme Court decisions. Yeah. I mean, you always see some kind of mix of people from one party or the other in nearly every decision. We're talking about- Yeah, and
0: hovering around 40% of unanimous decisions as well. Yeah,
1: the and then you see at basically over the past couple of years, really just the past two to three years, you see a dramatic drop in unanimous decisions and a huge spike. to now where we're at 21 percent mm-hmm. of decisions that are polarized. So this is not accidental, and that gets back to that two-year number that you're talking about. Like, why is the electorate all of a sudden two years ago getting really, uh, you know, suspicious of the Supreme Court and starting to see it as a partisan institution? It's because they have become a more partisan institution over the past few years and it's not accidental it's explicitly what the US senators are saying when they're picking their justices. So to me that that seems like pretty open shut. I think though what do we do about it I think is the tougher question.
0: There's a couple different ideas. One of it which is court packing which I think like the name kind of confuses people but literally is just increasing the number of seats which if we changed it um in like frequently six times and up until um, 1869 is when we landed on nine seats. And that's not in the constitution, that number. it's We could potentially expand it or shrink it. And I think that's probably the easiest sort of thing to reform, whereas I do think the lifetime appointment thing is probably the more concerning thing to me. I don't really have a problem with the number nine and right. having people cycle through a little more often. Um, I think that's the reason why, you know, I mean, it's it seems so arbitrary that you someone needs to die for you yeah. to, if you're a super successful judge or like a perfect appointee, like someone just has to die at the right time. And you're almost definitely going to be someone in your 50s, whereas, you know, there might be someone that's more qualified in their 70s that could serve for 10 years. Right. And so I think it, it, it narrows the pool considerably. You have presidents who just randomly happen to win because a ton of people die when they're in office, which seems right. like a kind of arbitrary measure. But I would say, that's the harder thing to fix because right. it is in the Constitution that the lifetime appointment, so long as they're in good behavior.
1: Yeah, you also have this phenomenon of people retiring, and we we can't get in their heads and say for sure that they're retiring because they want somebody of the same party to take their seat. But Except
0: you have, that pretty much for sure. Yeah, that's you have what Breyer I mean. and Kennedy most recently <laughs> yeah. doing this
1: now. Like for, again, I don't they didn't say that's why they did it, but it seems I suspicious mean. timing, right? Uh, so, and, and and people, activists were explicitly calling for it. And people so, would give
0: them hell if they had right. retired like during Trump's presidency.
1: Right. Yeah. And we're vice versa. Right. So, uh, so you have the explicit political stuff happening right before our eyes. The litmus test also coincides with the change from the the David Souter, Kennedy type Byron White on the other side who would be nominated by one party, but vote against the sort of ideological litmus tests that they yeah. put out there. Yeah. Where like we, this is not like a legal podcast, but essentially the conservatives have uh, kind of coalesced around originalism uh, as their judicial philosophy, which is basically saying like the Constitution is what it was when it was ratified, and that has all sorts of like what that means is a huge debate. And then you have the quote unquote living Constitution, which is what Democrats tend to support, which what they mean by that is that you can kind of like bring like modern. Need the modern the needs of modern society to the text and and in their interpretation that means things like Roe can stand even though the explicit text of the Constitution doesn't support that. That's essentially been the, the the kind of lens that each political party brings to this. But you're right, like the 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 litmus t- the uh, the size of the court is is an issue. The but it is. The, I don't
0: think it's necessarily an yeah. issue in and of itself, but it's an issue when you have lifetime appointment and such a small number of people. And you're seeing
1: people serve longer than ever, both because of uh, the length of time they spend on this earth, but also because for one reason or another, people used to be more willing to leave the court for reasons, Mm -hmm. and they don't do that anymore, maybe because of the stakes of it all. But there is one interesting proposal here by Stephen Calabresi and James Lindgren of uh, Northwestern University School uh, who propose – that a way around the constitution as they see it and i'm not an expert to know whether this would stand legally but a ton of people on both sides of the conservative and liberal spectrum have signed on to this legal scholars essentially what they're saying is we can create a system where we appoint judges and justices and they serve for 15 years and then they roll off and become senior justices and then we replace those people every 15 years so it both has term limits and Wait, uh, what does deal with a the, senior justice mean? so a senior justice is what Breyer is right now and david Souter is right now they're justices who had previously served as active justices on the court but they have now been like there's a, a confirmed replacement for them but they still get a clerk they still like can write scholarship yada 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 now what Calabresi and james lindgren seem to think is you could turn them into senior justices and they can sit in lower court hearings, so that they're, you know, they're part of district court, uh, you know, panels and appeals court panels, etc., and and that would bring an added benefit. There's a crisis of not enough judges in this country at the federal level, so this could help solve that. Now, I once again, I have no idea whether this would stand, but it is worth saying that the United States is unique among uh, democracies in Western countries in having lifetime appointments, it's even unique amongst the United States. I think there's only one or two states, Rhode Island being one of them, where you can appoint, where where they appoint justices for life. So this Mm. is pretty unique, what we have.
0: Yeah, I could even see a reform that, kind of ties the appointment process directly to the democratic process of electing a president where every term a president appoints one person regardless of whether someone died or not and right. then that way the voters at like through the proxy of having voted for a president for one term and even if they vote for them for a second term have at least some say in the balance of the court based on who they they elected president i think that would be probably more logical just because it doesn't make any sense that if you're a president who's just there for four years and it happens to be that you hit the timing right, you have an outsized effect on how the court could run for decades down the line like it just it seems so arbitrary to me that even as somebody who is generally a very traditional kind of like I like to respect the norms and the precedents and I don't like Burning things down and starting things over. I think right. this is a place that really is ripe for reform.
1: You have also this weird, I, I guarantee we're going to see this moment in our lifetime where you could see people nearly incapacitated who will refuse to leave the court uh, during the yeah. law administration there are some pr- things out there like internationally that we could point to Germany for example requires a two-thirds vote for a justice uh, Spain and Portugal require a supermajority. majority mm-hmm. On, in theory I'm kind of down with that but I think in our crippled system that just means we would never get anybody approved I just think yeah. that they would just be like alright like we're just never gonna like we'd rather have whoever benefits from whatever the current composition is once somebody passes away is just gonna be like we're we're just not going to go along with this vote.
0: Yeah, I think also just like probably another reform that's the easiest to institute would be to increase transparency in the court, which I think is one of the reasons why people's trust is eroding considerably. Um, They banned broadcasting um, their arguments in 1972, and there's a 65% public support to um, broadcast Um, Yeah, all we
1: get is the audio, right? Yeah. And we
0: also, and sometimes we'll get transcripts that can be hugely faulty, which we had like the Gorsuch hundreds of thousands versus hundreds or thousands of people Mm -hmm. have died from COVID or whatever. And like he got like, so much, so much hell for saying something that it seems like potentially he didn't say. And so I think, you know, if taxpayers are funding this institution, they should have the right to just at least understand what's going on behind closed doors. And I think that's probably the easiest thing to fix. Um, And and it's a popular reform.
1: Yeah, we did a whole segment of, um, of this a while ago about ethics of the Supreme Court and how they don't really have a... Uh, binding code of ethics that could prevent things yeah. like conflicts of interest, which is obviously a raging debate around Jenny Thomas and, and Clarence Thomas And we right already now.
0: have that for federal judges, um, yeah. most federal judges at the moment. And 72% of the public uh, believe that that would be uh, an easy reform to make. And I think those two are probably more practical than the whole process we would have to go through to change the number of seats or change the length of appointment. But at the very least, those would be steps in the right direction.
1: Well, let's move on to the presidential debates, Ricky, the, the, sorry, presidential, mid-term. the Senate debates, um, not yet presidential. We may never actually get presidential debates, which we'll get to, but yeah. uh, there's a ton of data out there about just a shift in how these campaigns are going down and how they're even interacting with each other.
0: Yeah. So typically in um, a midterm cycle, we'd see like three or more debates in big races, um, but now we're seeing more and more debates with fewer races and some with none entirely um, for some pretty novel reasons as well. Um, but essentially, this is like landing a job without a job interview, is what some people are saying. But <laughs> we have seen in the Senate just one debate in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina. And if you look at the top five most competitive uh, Senate races between the cycles between 2010 and 2022, in 2010, they had 17 uh, debates between them, and it went 17, 11 all the way down to now it's the past two cycles is, it have been seven. So um, a considerable drop here. And we have people saying they're not, uh, we have Fetterman like over his stroke. Um, We have Katie Hobbs, the Arizona governor candidate, saying that her opponent is incapable of a substantive debate. So quite a variety of um, of reasons being given here. I would guess there's probably a lot of people who just think that they're not going to land the debate quite as well as um, voters might hope they would. And so I think it's an interesting question because we see or I think there is a general impression that debates are an important part of having like a democracy and getting our ideas out and the kind of marketplace of ideas in in real life and action for voters. And so it's an yeah. interesting question of whether this is an important trend.
1: Yeah, and on the Federman front, he actually is now gonna debate, which is I, I've been publicly castigating the Hobbes campaign because I, my, my sort of thought process was if, if Federman can show up to a debate, which he'll do on October 25th, having, you know, in in the middle of a recovery of a stroke, the least thing she could do or that Herschel Walker could do in Georgia is show up to their debates.
0: Yeah. I Uh, mean, the Katie Hobbs thing is completely ridiculous to say that her views are dangerous. And so therefore, she shouldn't be allowed to air them. If they're so dangerous, go out there and, and nuke her yeah and i think yeah that that,
1: that's the debate that a lot of us are sort of in democratic politics have been having or not even debate i think we're all pretty unanimous on this it's it's kind of a puzzling campaign uh but you're seeing this like writ large right like the the rnc has already said they're not going to participate in presidential debates for the next cycle trump you know famously refused to the third debate because it was remote was his rationale but i think when you look beyond all of this there's the rationales people give yeah. which is, you know, it's biased or I don't want to platform somebody or whatever. Which I think, like the,
0: the handing of Hillary, giving Hillary Clinton um, questions ahead of time was kind of like the the catalyst for a lot of the Republican suspicion.
1: Yeah, but that was about Bernie Sanders. That wasn't about Hillary. And like yeah, the way that Yeah, think, but
0: I think the optics of something like that happening kind of were, were a catalyst for a lot of the it's rigged sort yeah, of Yeah, I would say stuff. it was
1: more, it was a justification, not the reason. Because the, the way that the debates work is it's a commission that the Republicans yeah, no, have I, to Yeah, I do agree that it's a justification. Yeah. But I do
0: think that was an important watershed moment yeah. for making it more acceptable to just be like, oh, I'm not gonna go right. because look at what sort of thing can happen. And
1: I think like what happens here is often, is related to this point, Point is there's the rationale they give and then there's as a political operative the real reason I think people don't show up to debates which is usually what's going on is that the person who thinks they won't benefit from the debate comes up with a reason not to go and it's just becoming easier to make that argument now and so for, you know basically the here are the general rules of debate refusal if you're down in the campaign you want to debate because it's a moment to capture attention and change the momentum of the race yeah uh or if you're a person who thinks you're better at debating and emphasis on thinks because if you've ever worked with a candidate before they all think they're great at debating. Mm. If you think you're great at debating and if your campaign comes to to the sort of like realization that you're great at debating, you're going to really want those debates. I think Carrie Lake's a good example of somebody who, whatever my opinions are about her ideas, would do really well in a debate setting. She was a TV news anchor for a long time. And so that's like why they do it, but like the implication is less easy to parse through because yeah. there's all this data. Uh, we're not gonna go through all the studies, but in, in in researching this segment, there's a lot of data out there that these things don't necessarily move people in the ways that we think that they do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think also though, there's going to be a new set of data that comes out of this election cycle where we now have so many people saying, I'm not going to debate. And I think even if we say, oh, debates don't really sway voters, I think not debating could very much sway right. voters. As a voter, everyone should expect that they're, the politician that they're electing into office can stand up to opposition, can articulate their opinions well, and is confident and competent enough to right. do that. And I think that there's going to be, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next election cycle people learn from the mistakes of some people this time around because I think voters will react more negatively to the lack of debate than positively to the debate in the first place. Yeah,
1: you also have the optics that, depending on the the contours of the situation, you could have an empty stage debate, which is a huge win for the candidate who shows up, right? Like in the case of Warnock, uh, from what I understand, Warnock shows up the libertarian candidate also shows up and they kind of just beat up on Walker, which is like the exact opposite of what you want, especially with that libertarian candidate who could siphon off votes that aren't necessarily pro-Walker or not. But there is an interesting history of debates here because when you look at the data around whether these things sway voters or not, historians generally agree that there were certain campaigns that were swayed by debate moments so 1960 which is kind of the birth of the modern debate was the first uh tv debate it was both on the radio and tv it was nixon kennedy uh famously nixon won among viewers radio listeners according to the historians like they would be like oh yeah he was more sensible but Mm. kennedy who wore makeup and was just like a more telegenic type of guy, uh, one among the TV viewers. Mm. You had 84, which was Reagan, who you know was a movie star, just like a generally gifted communicator, you know, was, you would use humor to try to uh, shore up his, uh, what were viewed as liabilities. So he had this debate with Mondale, who was also an old man, but Reagan famously said, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for
0: political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience
1: <laughs> which got a lot of laughs the first and this is going to date me but the first debate and campaign i remember was, i was only five uh but my parents were so partisan even back then that i i remember their commentary around this was dukakis versus bush and in this this was a famous example of a campaign where the people looking back say that it was a debate moment that changed the momentum of the race. And Dukakis, who is anti-death penalty, was asked if something horrible happened to his wife. Would he support the death penalty for her? And he says,
0: No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime.
1: Uh, And that people viewed that as like a confirmation of, this sense that Dukakis was weak and he was waffling and kind of technocratic. And that was one of many things that happened around that time to change the momentum of that race. But Ricky, there's one... I would say is the high watermark of debates that I wanna show you. Cause basically my theory is debating basically stopped being interesting and good in presidential races around the time that you were born in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid in ninety two I
0: can't disagree more in the interesting category. I think oh, yeah, the maybe Trump not. debates have yeah. been super interesting. Or I would say
1: substantive and like yeah. easy to watch. Okay, and so I'm gonna I'm fair. gonna play for you It is my favorite debate that's ever happened. And this is a moment between H. W. Bush in ninety two. Uh, and Clinton, and those who are listening at home, Ross Perot is there. He just doesn't speak during this debate, which I know is very important to you as a third party. We uh, do have a Ross Perot shirt. I was going to yeah. wear it
0: today, but I couldn't find it.
1: So, all right, let's play this clip. How has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And if it hasn't, how can you honestly find a cure for the economic problems of the common people if you have no experience in what's ailing them? Well, I think the national debt affects everybody. Uh obviously it has has a lot to do with interest rates. It has she's saying you you personally on a personal basis. How has it affected you? Has it affected you personally? Well I'm sure it has. I love my grand grandchildren. I want to think that I want to think think that they're gonna be able to afford an education. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um You know people who lost their jobs and lost their homes? Uh Uh-huh. Well,
0: I've been governor of a small state for twelve years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. Every year, Congress and the President sign laws that makes us, make us do more things. and gives us less money to do it with. I see people in my state, middle class people, their taxes have gone up in Washington and their services have gone down while the wealthy have gotten tax cuts. In my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them.
1: What I found interesting about this debate is like, none of these things are ever the Lincoln-Douglas debates, mm-hmm. but people are giving longer answers. Yeah. They're interacting with audience members and they're revealing something about who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And that was, that's what debates used to be. You know, you fast forward to to eight years, you had gore, uh, with Bush and and also in the case of a town hall where he was interrupting Bush, he was guffawing. It's like
0: sighing the yeah. whole time. And yeah. he was like
1: revealing something about him that the voters yeah. wouldn't have otherwise seen in the debate. So I think they, they used to serve yeah. a purpose. Well, I
0: would say for better or for worse, the most recent debates have revealed things about political candidates. Right. You might not I mean, have liked what it revealed, yeah. but you know it revealed quite a lot.
1: But they're almost unwatchable though. I think like the, the these past ones, I'm a polit- political but operative like what, and I don't but, even like to watch the, the but debates But I don't anymore. think
0: there's no, That doesn't justify to me having less of them. I think it's just returning them to like democratic ideals because I think like... Uh, the most fundamental thing that you can expect of a candidate is the ability to clearly articulate their stances, to be answerable on the spot to things, to stand up to people who disagree with them in a respectful and coherent way. And I mean, even though, like, yes, viewership is down and yes, there's statistics that they might not sway the vote considerably, people who watch debates are more likely to engage in a political conversation with the people in their lives. They're also more likely to report having a better sense of important issues and I think that's just a healthy thing and largely voters in my impression are less and less in touch with like the actual issues going on because we've just kind of gone into our little Twitter Mm -hmm. verses and that's not a healthy way to get our our data about the world. And actually seeing those little echo chambers colliding in this format is something that we should strive to restore to kind of, not that it's ever been perfect, but it's certainly been more perfect than today. And saying that just because I don't like your views or you're dangerous in what you're saying is just absolutely not an excuse,
1: period. Yeah, it's part of a a trend of decline of collective experience generally, right? And if we just focus on politics, like the, the fact that fewer White House press briefings or press conferences, town hall meetings like we're we're siloing you know no we, we've talked about broadcasting versus narrow casting now mm-hmm. where people are just getting the news from people that they agree with yeah and so you know somebody could in a you know well-intentioned way point to anything like these debates or the white house press briefings or anything else and be like they're they were ready a spectacle so let's get rid of it but i think if you zoom out the 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 collective uh, you know weight of all these decisions to walk away from these collective institutions that we have has pretty dramatic effects on our ability Absolutely. to even understand what's happening across the country with people with have different views than us
0: yeah you know? not to mention the fact that we have a system that continuously keeps candidates that are not part of a major party out of the debate stage, which I think is also something that is very ripe for reform and keeping that threshold at like the arbitrary 15%, because we know historically third parties rarely, but they get close, but they never really hit that mark. I think getting different voices and not just having like the two, two teams that we all are kind of familiar with just shouting past each other. would be interesting to get a bigger, What would
1: I'm I'm with you on the fifteen percent. I I do struggle though. I'm curious where would you draw the line? Because obviously you don't want like the equivalent of like the NFL Sunday Show of like eight people or the CNN thing where it's like.
0: I think ten percent is completely fair because we've seen libertarian candidates and third party candidates hit the ten percent threshold, but not hit the fifteen percent. And recognition is one of the biggest things. Like even if the ten percent candidate just kind of comes up and, you know, maybe they pull fifteen percent afterwards and then they fall out of the race, that's fine to me. It's just the idea that we could mix it up and actually allow voter like a more nuanced sense of voter demands to be reflected on a debate stage and to just get different ideas into people's ears through that medium would be a healthy thing, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And w- what's funny is we're debating this as if there are going to be any more presidential debates. This could be a, totally in the dustbin of history. We may never get another presidential debate. And one I'm thing
0: doubtful I, that'll actually well, come to fruition.
1: One thing I'm curious about is the primaries, right? Mm-hmm. I think who knows whether we have a Democratic primary or not, but we'll almost certainly have a Republican one. And so what I'm wondering is, is are the Republicans also not going to have a primary debate? Because I'm would sure be they crazy. will. I'm sure yeah. they
0: will. I I can't see a world where they don't. Yeah, and those I are just, less
1: le, less uh, tightly uh, managed. So like the presidential yeah. debates have to be a, like a subject of negotiation between the two parties. So they tend to be more organized. Whereas the the these debates and forums in the primaries could almost anybody we could host a lost debate and like yeah. like invite the candidates. They'd probably say no, but like. There's nothing to stop us from doing that. Whereas the presidential debates are are more of an institution the way they are in the primaries. Um, Well, uh, we have a couple of things to announce on the back end of this episode. One is we're going to start fact-checking previous episodes on the back end of shows. And so one thing that we got wrong in our last episode that we wanted to clarify is that we talked about um, the Biden administration's efforts to reclassify gig workers or, or 1099 employees and we contrasted that with w2 employees and throughout the segment we used the terms w2 and full-time employees interchangeably which missed an important distinction between the two because an employee with a w2 isn't necessarily full-time they can also be part-time and so like it could have led to some confusion
0: Got it. And also, um, a second exciting piece of Lost Debate news for uh, listeners who are invested enough to get to this portion of the podcast, um, we have <laughs> a voicemail now. So you can leave us your comments. Um, the phone number is three two one two zero 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 five seven zero, which is a pretty, pretty uh, nifty one. 321 a good, and you recorded area code. a nice voicemail for them. I did, yeah. so you can hear my voice greeting you and, and leave us comments or hate mail, whatever you prefer. Great,
1: um, that won't attract any creepy <laughs> messages at all. All right, well, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back here next Tuesday. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe us. Uh, you know the drill, it's really important for you to just put out there why it is you love this podcast, share it with your friends, and we'll talk to you next week.
0: The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado.